This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a fellow pop culture anthropologist, Kodachrome curator, and an ambassador of Americana who is known for his spirited slideshows, creative coffee table books, and live stream levity on demand. Coming up is my colorful conversation with His Majesty of Mid-Century, Charles Phoenix. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery. The curse of creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la. His Majesty of Mid-Century. You know what? I'm stealing that. I just, I'm running with it right now. His Majesty of Mid-Century. I mean, I have been studying the Mid-Century era. It's such a rich, it's so, there's so much to talk about and show and tell. And I already liked all this stuff anyway, like all the architecture and the cars and the fashion of the era, basically. It all came together when I found a box of Crotacomb slides in 1992 in a thrift store in Pasadena, California, marked trip across the United States, 1957. So that was a major turning point. Life is full of surprises. You never know what's going to be thrown your way. You're never going to know what you're going to do with that. And I found something that really inspired me that I wanted to share. So I started collecting and curating and categorizing. I guess that's all curating other people's old Kodachrome slides from the 50s and 60s. And pretty soon I wanted to share them. And so I had some friends over and one thing led to another. And I was doing the doing slideshows, retro slideshows, starting in 1998 in coffee houses and stuff for about six months around LA. And somebody said somebody would pay for this. Well, bingo, that became my job. Let's talk about the magic of a slideshow, okay? It's something that we both really appreciate, but it is a time travel as close to time travel machine in taking people back in time. When I was a kid and my dad would be in that slight projector light, like a little halo that was coming out of the bulb, he was the only one that could be seen in the room. And between him and the image, there was dust in the light that somehow made everything in the air very magical, not to mention the saturated colors of Kodachrome film. Maybe you can describe some of those colors, really unusual red that almost begs memory to come forward. Kodachrome has more colors than digital. Kodachrome is cap- Kodachrome film stock is capable of more color tones and hues and shades. So there's nothing like Kodachrome. Kodachrome is the most luxurious medium for anything to have been documented in. To me, at least, I'm Pretty sure that's true. And as far as the, you know, doing slideshows and getting up in front of audiences and presenting still images, found photography is sometimes how I have to describe it. They're like, you do what? And I'm like, oh, it's commentary to found photography. In the case of this photography, it happens to be Kodachrome slides. So it's a beautiful, like you said, gorgeous color. 
somebody at the end of a show once came up to me and said, we love the slides you're showing. But what we really love is you loving the slides. That's what we really love. That's why we're here. Not to see pictures of somebody's living room from 1959. We love that. But it's you loving it that we love. So I realized at that moment, enthusiasm is nine tenths of the law. And then storytelling is the other thing. You got to tell people stories, open the door and let them in. You got to give them an arc of, you know, a beginning, a middle and an end. And, And one time the movie director, Gus Van Zandt, came to see my show and he said, people make up their mind within five minutes if they like a movie or not in the first five minutes. You know, it's the same thing with a show. I like this or I don't like this. And and if they don't like it, you're never, virtually never going to win them back. But it really boils down to storytelling, enthusiasm, knowing what you're talking about. You know how contagious that is. Right. But let me pay a compliment to you because when you tell a story, when you went to a slide, yes, you were passionate about it, but also you're a forensics expert. You look at it and you have a fashion sense. You were a designer. You have a sense about architecture and hairstyle and food. Every slide is a crime scene to you. You're like, all right, let's look at that outfit. Let's look at that moment. And and that's what I meant by it was somewhat of a time travel is that you set the tone and the era and then the what if you spend so much time curating exactly, and, and maybe part of the forensics is this, because I've bought slides from the internet and other places and found them at garage sales. And there's hints, not just in the picture, but you know, it'll say Aunt Earlene's written on the bottom and that stuff is pure gold. Yeah. I mean, the real pure gold is, you know, what I found picking out the slides that you can kind of create a story arc with of some sort. It's, it's storytelling. That's the main thing. I, I mean, I realized right away, I can't just show pretty pictures. There has to be, there has to be a reason. There, I mean, some, sl- some slides stand alone. Other ones require a little, you know, like a party scene or something. You'll see the broad shot and then you'll see like a couple people doing something and then the punchline, the visual sight gag, whatever it is. I mean, I also started uh, getting inspired by what I saw in the slides and started the first time I ever did food based on the slide. I mean, one of the running gags in one of the first slideshows I ever did was the fact that we saw three different people or three different tables full of food on our trip across the United States. And everybody was serving ambrosia, (laughs) which if you look it up, it says mythological food of the gods. Ambrosia typically is well-drained fruit cocktail. Drain it 48 hours in the refrigerator. That's how long you have to drain that fruit cocktail. Then you mix it with um, Cool Whip, which was invented in 65, and coconut, shredded coconut. And what's the other thing you put in there? Um, why am I blanking? Marshmallow, um, right? Marshmallow! Right. Thank you, Pat. See, I knew I could count on you. And you can also put other things in there too, like you know, walnuts or whatever. Um, or if you're like Italian, you can put candied fruits in there. I don't know why I just said that I did. I, I'm obsessing over fruitcake right now, but we're not talking about fruitcake. We're talking about ambrosia. So anyway, I started also adding, like making up recipes and stuff and adding stuff like that. So I've kind of expanded the format to actually, you know, bring myself into the story. I mean, for years, you know, it took a lot of courage for me to put a slide of myself up on that screen. I kind of realized at some point that I'd become the face of this brand of these, you know, Charles Phoenix slideshows. So I ended up putting myself in the show. Uh, a little bit more, but it's, and now it's kind of a mishmash 
mostly not me, but occasionally I show up with a recipe or something like that. My discovery of a rediscovery of the slideshow was in my show, The Wonder Bread Years, and I basically scavenged my own family slides because my parents were away and they, once people lose the bulb to their projector, it sort of, it dies on the vine, you know? And so I got a new bulb. I sat in their basement, played them on the wall. And what I was really looking for was an authentic record to prove that the stories I was telling were true about growing up, meaning my stand-up of my worst Halloween costume and all of those things. I was like, I know these are true stories. There must be some images. So I was actually doing it from a crafting and writing standpoint what I did was I told a lot of very funny stories, which led up to a moment where I did my dad doing the family slideshow. And then each time there was a side of me dressed as Colonel Sanders or whatever, they're like, oh my God, this guy's telling the truth. Now, not everything was true, but suddenly it seemed like it must be true because there's enough pictures Then maybe he did wear bread bags to school on his feet. That was just my own family archive. And when I was somewhere else doing a Christmas show where we were suddenly getting other people's pictures, what really fascinated me, and this you can probably speak very highly to because you're the kingpin of Kodachrome, there was a limited number of exposures on a roll of film. It was like 12, 24, 36. So people were a little more cautious of what they took a picture of and in some ways because it was an event. And I noticed patterns it was a special moment. It was a baby's first steps. It was a wedding. It was brand new car, brand new boat. And they're always standing proudly in front of something that was like, oh, this is worth a picture. I have found that people's photography habits are wildly repetitive from one human to another. So what I'm looking for when I'm looking through other people's old Kodachrome slides is something unique, something extraordinary, something great a great scene, a great thing, a great, uh, just the whole thing has to be great. That's what I'm looking for. Something extraordinary to put up on a pedestal and, and tell people why this is so great. You know, I always say I'm looking through the layers of time and that's what I'm doing. I, but, and, and in doing so, I'm really looking for greatness. And what I'm doing is I'm paying tribute mm. to this time in history, to this design aesthetic, to this cultural aesthetic. Now, I'm also not saying that everything was perfect during the mid-century era. I, I don't say that at all. We don't go there. I never talk about politics. Whatever I'm talking about, this car, or those clothes, or this place, Miami Beach, Las Vegas, Disneyland, Catalina Island, Palm Springs, wherever we're going, the Grand Tetons, whatever, you know, this, it's all about creating scenes. And it's, it's cinema, it's pictures, it's places, it's it's so many things, so many layers. It's all amateur photography too, right? I mean, well, it is, yeah. And and great amateur photography is uh, accidental. I have your book, Americana the Beautiful. And, you know, right in the very opening, one of those pictures is a, is a whole family watching a slideshow. Yes, that's the first. Oh, picture. it is so amazing to look at each of their faces and them looking at the screen, which you don't see. That's sort of the perspective of where you are. You just you've just inspired me. I have to take a note. Pat. Okay. Sorry. This is a tribute. I want to make sure to say that in my next show. This is a tribute. It is a tribute. And, this is a celebration. And you are a great steward of of taking people through it. So, Thank you, you know, well, I, I try, you know, I've been doing it for a while. I mean, I'll tell you, as I said, the reason why I was able to continue to do this 
The reason why people continue to show up and show up again and tell their friends and bring their friends really was, I was like a kid in a candy store. I thought I found something really special. Now, 20 years ago, plus when I started doing this, found photography hadn't become a thing yet. So we, we didn't have those words, found photography. But um, my point was, I was knowledgeable about what I was talking about. And that just came accidentally. I, I mean, I, I might as well, I'm old enough to say I'm an expert on you know, the history of 20th century fashion and transportation and architecture and that kind of stuff. I don't know why. I don't know why. I just am. I just, it's, it's information. And that is the information that sticks with me. I'm terrible at technical stuff, even though I'm good at math. Um, but anyway, photographs, I, I didn't realize I have a photographic memory. I do. That's the way my brain works. And so I love pictures. I love to look at pictures. I'm also a little bit, I'm not that great of a reader. I read photos. I read pictures. I get a lot of information that way. And, you know, I really only read to complement what I've learned visually. Kodachrome had its final moments at Dwayne's photo in Kansas. Kansas. They were the last place, the last facility that had the right chemicals and the whatever to develop. I think it was 2010, uh, December of 2010, because that was right around when my Christmas show was coming out. And part of the plot was about the idea that the last rolls of film have to be developed. To me, the, the main line within the show was that Kodak can take our film, but they can't take our memories. We carry this forward. And so part of it is that I said many times that I love nostalgia. And I know that word has a different meaning to you. I know. Look at it. Oh, oh so I, ha, ha, but I ha, want ha, you to ha, explain. Ha. We can't say <laughs> nostalgia. Okay. So please. That's what Never I want to explain that again. I just know. Poison, poison word. Okay. So tell me about the history is a word we also do not say. Mystery? And I'll tell you why. History. Oh, history. Don't use it. Poison. Tell me why. It's Tell me poison. why. Memory lane. Oh, oh, no. I know. I don't like memory lane either. Okay. I'll tell you why. Here's the reason. Because, you know, we have to turn what we are doing into a marketable commodity. And history has very little value in our culture. So using the H word, as I call it, is poison to profit. Memory lane is like perfect if you're in 1975. Talking about, you know, great grandpa's, you know, whatever on the farm in 1929. We're not doing that anymore. Nostalgia. Um, nostalgia is a poison word. It has no value. I mean, um, you know, what I'm really excited about is or has been interesting to me over the last, you know, 10 plus years is, I mean, to see a whole new generation of like 20 and 30 somethings glom on to that mid-century study, that mid-century aesthetic, like kind of understanding like they made a washing machine called a Speed Queen. You know, that's not what we think of as a Speed Queen. They had that brand name. You know, I mean, it's it's like to see them discover cars with big fins, like a 59 Cadillac. You know, it's like they've never seen this before. I mean, when we were little kids, Pat, I don't know how old you are. Maybe you're not as old as I am, but you know, like the lady across the street had a 59 Cadillac with big fins. I used to stare it out the window and go like, is that a rocket ship in that lady's driveway? No, it's a car that looks like a rocket ship. There was a lot of design that featured rocket ships and space age and 
right? That was when Tang was being pushed on us and it was a forward thinking idea. It was like the future is the future is now. There was a lot of evolution that happened quickly. And, you know, marketing was so interesting. Product, productivity, the quality of the goods and everything came in like bright colors. And, you know, I drive around and I don't know about Austin or whatever, but I can tell you in Southern California, every new thing that gets built is in what I call Starbucks style, like a gray and a warm gray and fake reclaimed wood. Every house that gets redone is redone in gray. I am so sick of gray. I want to live in an Easter basket. Right. <laughs> that's what I like. And that's the reason why I like mid-century so much, among other reasons, because I like color. No fear of color. I want things in color. If, you, if I could show you my living room right now, you'd have to put on sunglasses. No, I, I was just going to say that while this is an audio-only podcast, I can see you in a diorama of Americana. Like you are the, the full Technicolor dream there. I am. I am. So I decided to paint my living walls orange. Well, they were never anything but bright colors, but now currently they're orange. But well, no, I, I just want to start fresh on a new idea. And that is this. I, for some reason, am also very attracted to roadside attractions and unusual places to go. Like I've been to the Corn Palace in Mitchell, South Dakota and in and many places along the way. But you, in many of your books, like you're an author of many books, but you've made these stops on the Route 66 route. And I'm curious what maybe your top three roadside attractions are. Well, I love to travel. I am such a good little traveler and my karma in the world or whatever it's called, my fate or whatever. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Well, everywhere I go to every city that I go to, there's always somebody that shows up out of the blue that says, I've seen your social media. I know what you like. Come with me. I'll show you everything. So what I already know about that town I see, and then what vintage, interesting, unique places that, that you can't see anywhere else. Now, I always say that when we travel, we're not traveling to other places to see, to experience what we can experience where we live ourselves. We're looking for uniqueness. We're looking for something that is, defines that place. Um, local, local food is a big one too as well. But anyway, my favorite roadside attraction tragically has just closed. Uh, it is called Roadside America. It is in Pennsylvania. It was the work, it was a miniature village, an indoor miniature village made by one man from his, like when he was five years old, he, he made a miniature house or something. And his parents were like, oh my God, okay, you're five years old and you just made this house and it's so perfect. All we're going to do is dedicate our lives from now on to uh, do everything we can do so you can just continue to make models. So he did from like 1905 when he was like five years old to 1963 when he dropped dead, the miniature village that he created, and it's more than that, but let's just say miniature village was in Pennsylvania on display at this place until this year it closed. So I don't know what's to become all the stuff. I love that. I mean, there are so many. There are places everywhere. And the thing is, is you got to get the story of these places. And, you know, they all have a unique, weird story. I mean, I've been so many places. I haven't been nearly enough places. I've not been to the Mitchell Corn Palace, however, high on my list. Because my touring shows would land in a town and we would be there sometimes for two weeks doing the show, there was always some field trip to be had. So, oh, every right, day. So I would say to them, what do you got? They go, hey, we're going to take you to the Peeps factory where they make Easter Peeps. And that happens to be the same Just Born candy shop where they make hot tamales and 
Ike and Mike's and whatever. I'm there. I'm there. Let me Let's tell go. You, it is hilarious. Like when they give you the sort of the VIP tour too, you ask yeah. questions, you whatever. We're going through there. These ladies on the assembly line that are putting the little frosting eye on the peeps, they just hand you the gun and go do a few. And you're like, oh, they go up this conveyor belt and there's a thing they call the uh, sugar shower that they literally jump off and get hit by the sugar and then they land on this next little thing. And the machine was a little squeaky and it was like, I'm asking them, is that where it got the name? Because they would jump and it would go beep. They would make the squeaking sound. They go, no, no, it's just an old machine. But whenever they just give you a nugget, just finding out that hot tamales, which is the red cinnamon version of the Mike and Ike's, you know, I liked those when I was a kid. I enjoyed them even a little bit as an adult. But when I discovered that it was that the powerful cinnamon taste and the red food coloring was meant to cover up all the other flavors that didn't work out. Like they fell off the conveyor or they they would scoop all those up and turn them into the hot tamale. Not They didn't hit the floor. Yeah. And, and you're like, oh, well, I think I'm getting a little too inside here. I, I went to a, uh, I guess it was a Milton Bradley plant, I think that, not Hasbro, but somebody else, they sort of combined them. And, you know, the twister tarps were coming off the line and women were counting out the money for Monopoly and various things. And all of it was just like every second I was stimulated by it. And the guy says to me, one of the most interesting rooms has nothing in it. I'm going, what do you mean? He goes, we moved it 15 years ago overseas. I'm going to take you in there and you tell me what we made in there. And he opens this big door and there's just this cavernous, what looked like it might've been some kind of ice cooler. I mean, it's just, just big, big empty warehouse. And then the waft of Play-Doh, like it's, the oil from that stuff is on the wall. It's, you know, they can't get it out of there. It's a huge whiff of childhood. Yeah, Play-Doh was, you know, originally invented as a wallpaper cleaner. Oh, I did not know that. And it, like, I, yeah, and I, some kid was like, wait, I can make stuff out of this. Add food coloring, next thing you know. Yeah, I know. Everything, all these products, that's, you know, I love playing tribute to these heritage products, food products, the games, all that stuff. And that's what I cover in my book. Like, my, I have a new book. Well, it's a couple years old now. Addicted to Americana and talking about, oh, Milton Bradley. We talk about that in my Holiday Jubilee book, yes, what- the games people play. And, you know, they started in like 1869 and they had a um, spinner instead of dice, uh, lest these games be confused with gambling. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's what I, I put in here. You know, the one I, you might like this, the one I liked where the dice didn't have dots on it. It had the numbers as if you couldn't count to five. It had the number five, four, whatever. They didn't trust you not to lose the dice. So they put it inside a little snow globe that where it was called Popomatic Games. They had a few of those where you would, you would click those. down on it. It would go, right? And it would shoot the dice around on the inside. But it was primarily so kids wouldn't lose the dice, I think, you know? Yeah, probably. So Trouble was the probably most known of the Popomatic games, but they had three or four of them. I was never really a game player. I mean, I did play games as a child, but I can't stand to play games as an adult. I, I never want to go to a party and, and either play games or watch a movie. Oh, really? You're not a, a movie watcher? Mu- oh, no, not at a I party. See. I'd rather talk. Let's talk about your books because they do cover a lot of range. You know, I think I've co-written two and I've written, I think, seven by myself. So that's a total of, let's call it eight. But the latest is Holiday Jubilee, which covers all the holidays. It's basically the pop culture history of our holidays. And holidays are so retro. 
You know, I don't get into the religion of the holidays. Um, I talk about it at the beginning, but it's more about the commercialism of, of our holidays. It's fun because like who invented the first Easter egg die? It's so great. I saw something very recently when we went to set this up on Facebook where you were talking about design and imagery on everything from oil cans to Barber's stuff. That was the way they really spent time designing a feel and a mood and a tone before generic design. Yeah, you're right. Generic. That's a very good way to say what it wasn't. But at the same time, the weird thing is if we could go back, let's just say we could go time in a time machine right now and go back to, I don't know, 1950 something, we would run screaming. <laughs> because, I mean, the conformity, we would just be shocked at how like narrow-minded people were. Not that I, I never get into that. I never talk about that. It's not about that, of that era of time. We're talking about the products that they made and the places you could go and how you could get there. I don't know how you could find your own house. They all look alike in certain areas. Yeah, I mean, you know, Disneyland is kind of the central nervous system style guide-wise of the 50s, really. Several style guides that they really followed. And I happen to be a child of theme parks, so that kind of sectioning things off in that way. That's why Disneyland was such a huge influence on me, uh, to be able to do what I do. As I'm going in there as like a three-year-old, I'm going like, okay, I get this. Adventureland. Yeah, I get it. It's kind of islandishy <laughs> stuff and all that. Okay, I get that whole motif. Frontierland. Okay, it's all westerny <laughs> stuff. I get that whole arc of that world, basically, as it's presented to us. Tomorrowland is everything like futuristic. And okay, I get that. Fantasyland is it, like Main Street USA. I totally was able to categorize style guides. And that was the backbone to everything that I glom onto and study now is the ability to recognize a style guide. And I'm also very interested in, in fashion trends and fads, not just fashion, but everything's fashion. Buildings are styles of buildings. It's like fashion. There's so much more fashion than just clothing. So, I mean, we have, as the years go by, we have less and less fashion in the world, less detail, that's for sure. I mean, you know, boutique businesses, you know, year by year diminish a little more. You used to do tours of Los Angeles to show people sort of fabulous old architecture and all of that. No, I, I gave that up. I, gosh, I can't remember the last time I did it. It's probably been about five years now, but for 11 years, yes, I did a tour of downtown LA called the Disneyland tour of downtown LA. I said, we don't have one Disneyland, we have two. Downtown Los Angeles is just like a theme park. And if you think about it, all of our great cities are like theme parks. Like you go to Paris and, you know, there are certain attractions and areas that you basically have to see. And they're, these places are famous and branded like the Continental Club in, in, in Austin. That's a land. I was just hardwired to know how to be a good tour guide. I mean, you have to lead people to something and you need to explain while you're there. And you need to, it becomes a moment. It's a series of moments. It's like theater. You've got to tell them stories. You've got to give them a reason to care. You've got to fortify them with information so they can connect to it and be, again, enthusiastic about it. And, you know, also timing is so important. Those are things I'm good at. I, I run on military time. I don't know why I was just born that way. If you said, if you invited me over to your house and said 8 o'clock, not 7.59, not 8.01, 
Eight o'clock. Ding dong. <laughs> I'm just like weird that way. When you were a kid, what? who do you think had the biggest impact on your creativity? Lucy and Sonny and Cher were good ones. Um, I mean, I used to like to watch that Sonny and Cher show because they had such amazing clothes. And I was like, you know, I didn't want to dress like Cher. I wanted to dress like Sonny. Sonny had amazing suits. Um, Lucy and Ricky, they looked in, they always, their clothes were so impeccably fit. If you watch I Love Lucy, notice the fit of Ricky's clothes. I mean, impeccable. Um, you know, they were all tailor-made, I'm sure. Basically, I grew up on a used car lot. That was a big influence. I mean, growing up on a used car lot. So there's cars, 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 cars. And okay, I became a car freak. I've been collecting classic cars for years and years and years, for, for, forever, my whole adult life. And then let's see, what else? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> this is going to be good. Shopping, shopping. The shopping mall. Where do we begin? Okay, I'm the weirdo kid who paid attention to everything. We would we went to the mall all the time. Not terribly in like everyone else's family at the time. We went to the mall like two or three times a week. And we had a lot of malls because it's Southern California. So you could go, there was malls in every direction. And we hit the mall and... You know, my dad would go find stuff he's looking for. My mom would go find. I'd get a dollar to go to Spencer Gifts, which is where, you you know, was, everything was blacklit. <laughs> right. Spencer Gifts was a place, in my mind, that there, there was nothing I could buy that I needed. But everything was, oh, this would be perfect for him. This would be dumb. My dad would like that. Like, there was always some moronic thing for somebody else. Yeah, I mean, it was the ultimate, like, groovy mod right you know, store. But I paid attention to everything. All the windows. I mean, these are the days still when they did window dressing with dummies or mannequins or whatever they're called in the windows. I paid attention to like, oh, the skirt lengths are shorter this year. <laughs> it's shocking. Also having being the exact age from remembering when we had it downtown. Did you go to the drive-in movies when you were a kid? Yes, we used to go to the drive-in. We had a lot of drive-ins in Southern California. I love drive-ins. Um, we still have a couple of drive-ins that were recently open, reopened that are amazing drive-ins. So we've got some drive-ins. Do you have one in uh, Austin We do. Still? We have the Blue Starlight, I believe, and that's kind of a newer one. Uh, well, ours, the ones that we have left are our old ones, and miraculously, they survived. Some of them stayed alive by having swap meets on the weekends and doing other ways yes. of having some revenue flow. But I remember because we had six kids in our family, that was the most affordable way our parents could take us, you know, in the back of the country squire wagon. But oftentimes they thought we were asleep when the second feature would come on. I, we, I remember seeing Cold Turkey with Dick Van Dyke, which was where a whole town was trying to give up smoking. Oh, gosh, I've never heard of that. That sounds... Oh, oh you got to look that one up. Some kids would be sleeping and other ones would be peeking over the back of the seat. Yeah, I'm glad to see that drive-ins have made a comeback. There's nothing... There is a drive... Seeing a movie under the stars in a car, there is something uniquely American about that. There's a certain energy that you get there that you don't... There's no other energy anywhere like that. It kind of also reminds me the other day I was talking about roller rinks. Oh, yeah. We have an amazing roller rink. It's a, from the 50s. And when you walk in the door, it's like 1955, 65, 75, 85, 95, 2005, 2015, all rolled into one with a heavy undertone of the classic everything. And, and it's like there's a certain energy in the roller rink that you don't get anywhere else. There's nothing else that duplicates 
that sensation of its bodies. It's just unique. I love, I mean, it's a They still experience. have the guy on the speaker that says all skate? Yes, they do. I hope. The guy that owns the place, Dominic, he plays the organ. Like every Tuesday night, he plays the organ there. It's classic. We have a place in Austin. It's not a roller rink, but it's called the Broken Spoke. And the Broken Spoke is a honky tonk. And the guy who owns it rolls out a big wagon wheel with a broken spoke on it <laughs> tells you some stories about touring bands and stuff and they're just it's not just the kitsch it's the idea that he's been doing this for 50 years is it 50 well, I years don't know. Well, easily probably i don't know well that's the first night i ever went to austin that's where mary and oliver took me <laughs> they said we're going to the broken spoke i loved austin i i really was impressed by austin and austin one of the things that stands out the most to me is your amazing selection of neon signage, which is heaven. There's a reason. There's a great neon guy on first that made the Museum of Neon or something where he could display all of his signs. He started to showcase his signs on the four corners of that. And it started to grow from there where it was like, I need one of those. I need one of those. And it's beautiful, beautiful work. So we're lucky to have somebody like that that impacts community well it really makes austin unique and the overall arc style guide to austin in my opinion was like roadside ramshackle sheep <laughs> which is like my favorite style it's like cars land at disney well, we do have a couple of there's something up in round top which is uh i don't not flea market but there's some kind of a roadside garage sale there's a couple of people up there that are curating furniture and antiques and all kinds of stuff and there, there's a lot of pilgrimage to find that sort of country style rustic roadside ramshackle chic is what i call it it's kind of gas pumps and all that kind of neon signs it's definitely you know a big slice of uh, americana right there even americana is a word that i am gonna wean myself of soon Americana is not a word that 30-year-olds that understand. Like, what are you talking I know, about? Which what? is tragic ah. because it really is a warm word. And, you know, in Addicted to Americana, your book by Charles Phoenix, which you could probably purchase from charlesphoenix.com. Maybe, maybe. They should go check out charlesphoenix.com regardless. There's just great clips. There's the salute to the... Sure, Pumple. You're good, Pat. You're good. Well, I know that's sort of the turducken of the dessert world. Yeah, high stuff cake. High stuff cake. Right. So, so they understand it's a cherry pie stacked on a pumpkin pie stacked on an apple pie. But each one has been stuffed in a cake. Right. A then it, it, cake first. Okay, then it, so and then it, you frost yeah. the whole thing, right? Or no? Yeah, it's it's uh, three layers of cake. Each has a pie baked right. into it. Yeah. It's 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 a whole thing. It'll take over your life. It does sound rich, and it doesn't sound necessarily cardiologist approved or anything. No one's talking about that anymore. No, no one's mentioning that anymore. You're the first person in years that has mentioned that it's not healthy. What is healthy? What is healthy? I'm Some, wondering. Probably a kale smoothie or something. You know, to me, that's just like drinking colonoscopy prep or something. But. Ah! No, no I'm just that. saying, I don't know what kale's purpose is. I always feel anytime a new thing comes along where people say, you have to try this. I always go, who's a, who's a marketing firm for kale? I tried kale chips. I made kale chips at home and they were like delicious. I just sat there and ate them all. You bake them with salt, right? Well, I covered them, you know, sprayed them with, I like cooking too. Well, uh, here's the thing though. I love that you love exploring the food because you had a, a test kitchen where you came up with the chirp. 
made up recipes. Yeah. 21 of my test kitchen recipes are in the book, Holiday <laughs> Jubilee, including there's the triple oh, yeah. right there. Three pies and three cakes. Yeah. I don't use recipes because my brain doesn't go there. I don't need recipes. I know about the chemistry of how food goes together. I mean, most things are pretty simple in the realm of food. I mean, yeah, of course, there are some things that I couldn't get exactly right if I tried. But I can, you know, you want to make banana bread? Who needs a recipe? You want chocolate chip cookies? It's like a little bit of this, that, that. I watched my mother make chocolate chip cookies 98,000 times. I have an idea about how much flour. I have an idea about how much sugar. And guess what? They turn out fine. You know, I'll tell you one day, though, I didn't have any flour. And I didn't have, (laughs) I didn't have anything to make cookies with. And I wanted cookies bad. So I had cake frosting in the can, that awful stuff yeah. that comes in the canister, and um, which is secretly good. And I had a box of Betty Crocker cake mix and two eggs. And I thought, wait a minute now, I've got the eggs, I've got the dry, the flour and the sugar is in the dry mix of the cake box. And that frosting is nothing, but it's just oil. That's what it is. And so I thought, if I just mix it all together and I'll have cake frosting cookies... Well, guess what? What do you think? They were delicious. That's fantastic. Well, I mean, I could talk to you forever about so many things. I mean, we have so many common interests. I'm just sorry, Pat, that we didn't get a chance to talk about how we've been forced as creative people and as entertainers live on stage, how we've been forced to accept the reality of the fact, or maybe we did talk about it, that we had to reinvent this year. Here's the thing. We might as well get it out in the open right now. I wasn't going to say this, but I'll just say it. And that is this. This has been the best year I've had in years because I love this. I've been doing these retro slideshow performances all across the United States for 20 years. And I've enjoyed every one of them. And I've enjoyed meeting all the people and going all the places and all the interesting theaters and all the this and that on the way there to and from and everything else and all the treasures and everything else and the attractions and the legendary landmarks and icons of these towns and places and cities and countrysides that I've been in. I loved it. But it got to a point where like, even like five years ago, where I'm sitting here, you know, every Wednesday with my librarian who comes over, Teresa, thank goodness, without her, I wouldn't have been able to do anything because she keeps track of all the slides where they all are. Just to be clear, you called her your librarian. Librarian, yeah, librarian. You know, I'm just, it's going along and everything's fine and it's all good and everything and I'm doing well. You know, I just kind of need to move it forward. I need to evolve it. Well, guess what? Then comes... The big, you know what? And I thought, okay, now I really am forced to evolve it. And one of the things to do was to take my live show online. So I did. Did we talk about that? No, no, please tell me. Please tell me. I did. I I mean, it was, you know, first of all, someone said people would pay to watch your show online because that's all people are just sitting at home. They'd pay for this. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't really feel comfortable with that. I don't really like digital that much. And Zoom sucks. I hate Zoom. But finally, somebody said, no, we're not doing Zoom. We're going to do YouTube Live because you can get a really beautiful quality picture on YouTube Live. So I sold tickets. Um, I mean, I got a producer. He had a staff of people to put it all together. And I kind of started promoting it on my social media and everything. And it turned out to be a big success. So now I'm going to do another one. So, I mean, that now is going to become, I'm hoping, my main stock and trade. Technology is here for us. So we might as well use it. We're living in a whole new world now. Well, I'm with you. I don't know who said this, but somebody said not all storms come to disrupt your life. Some come to clear a path. 
Well, I, I, I mean, I've never heard that before, Pat. I'm going to tell everyone. Yes, I'm sure you are. But the pandemic pause is forcing us to say, what is it we really do? Where do we want to be seen in this? What are What's our purpose or passion that we want to amplify? And I find that the discovery of you going online is that it doesn't have to be the 800 people that sit in that seat on that night. They can be in 800 places or a thousand places or across the globe. And they were, they were, they were from across the globe. Because I mean, social media has brought that audience. Thank goodness for social media. I mean, people whine and moan and complain about it. I always say it's like a chainsaw. You can use it, you know, in many ways for better or worse. I have a show on YouTube called Joyride, which has me um, featuring classic cars of the space age, the atomic era. Sometimes I call them cosmic carriages. So I profile different cars and their owners and stuff like that. Frankly, it hasn't been that successful on YouTube. It's been way more successful on Facebook. You just try different things. That's the other thing is I realized during this pandemic and reinventing and redoing and rethinking and rehabbing and rebuilding and everything and restoring and re and re everythinging. I, I had to say to myself, oh, 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 there's no such thing as a mistake. If you try anything, it'll pull you forward somehow. Failure is a lot like success. I mean, the only real difference, because it it always moves you forward. That's the other thing. Going around the merry-go-round of like doing a creative, when you do a creative thing, like if you're a painter and you paint the same thing over and over because it sells, or if you're a singer and you have to sing the way we were over and over and over and over again or whatever, it's like you kind of want to not. You kind of need to move forward. So I was kind of on this merry-go-round as I was doing what I was doing the same way. It was the same formula, different topics, but same formula of presentation. And I got to the point where I have to, I've got to, to reinvent this. So, so, so reinventing is really important in creativity. You've got to, you've got to keep it moving forward. You've got to keep stretching and you've got to keep trying new things. And there's no such thing as failure because you will, that's what I decided this year. I'm not going to beat myself up if I fail. And I did a couple things that didn't, they fell flat. Oh, well, that's fine. Cause then it pushed me onto something else and it moved me forward. You just got to keep moving. You got to keep dreaming. You got to keep visualizing dreams, stir your soul and goals move mouth. I love your books. I love your energy. I'm Thank happy you. that you're moving to new horizons and, rediscovering your voice online. I'm going to encourage everyone to check you out at charlesphoenix.com. And I hope we can visit again sometime. I hope so too. Thank you, Pat. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations that offer a spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under Wizbang producer, Amanda Rosenberg with editing by soundsmith, Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Please feel free to reach out with your input or to share a review through social media on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. That's right. It's dot fun because dot com is not fun. Cheers. La, 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 la. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage.